We're going to uh, look at the scriptures together now. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you head and open it up to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. We're going to go there. But before we get there, I just want to quickly share some great news with you. This week we're about to sign a lease on an office space in uh, Camperdown, which is great news. Can I get someone to angle that fan away from my notes? Otherwise, I'm going to lose them. Thank you. Uh, we've signed some, uh, we're about to sign a lease for an office space in Camperdown, which is great. One of our generous financial supporters has donated $10,000 to make that possible, which is great news. Um, I've been working out of cafes. I've been attempting to work out of our home, which is almost impossible with two young kids in a two-bedroom unit. To be honest, sometimes I get in the car and I drive out of our car park into the park over the road and just sit in the front seat of the car and just work on my laptop there. It hasn't been particularly productive, and so the provision of office space is a wonderful blessing, and it's just another evidence of how God has been so good to us. So we rejoice in that good news. I don't know if you've seen the movie Talladega Nights with Will Farrell. It's one of the classics. There's a scene in that movie as his family sits down for a meal of Pizza Hut, KFC, and Taco Bell, and Will Farrell says, Grace, and by the chuckles you're familiar with it, he starts his grace by saying, Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers in the South call you, hey Zeus, dear tiny baby Jesus in your golden fleece diaper, eight pounds, six ounce, newborn infant, all cuddly yet still omnipotent. It's a very humorous scene if you've seen it. And far from, I think, having a go at Jesus, what I think they're actually doing in that movie is having a go at Christians having a go at the superficiality of their prayers. You know, one of the most devastating and personally convicting things I've ever read on prayer myself has been the introduction to D.A. Carson's Call to Spiritual Reformation, the book that Brad plugged this morning. In the introduction to that book, and I, I, I never read prefaces and introductions. I skip past it, get to the meat of the book. But for whatever reason, I, I read the introduction of this book. And I, didn't, I, think, I actually don't think I knew it was a book on prayer. I thought it was a book on reformation. And so I started reading this book. And he begins by asking the question, what is the most pressing need of the Western church today? And he begins to offer up all these suggestions. And I found myself agreeing with so many of the suggestions that he offered. He says, is it, is it that we need purity in matters of sexual relationships? And as you look around the church today, all you need to see is the amount of pastors who are tapping out because they've committed adultery with their secretaries or people in their church. All you need to look at is the rising promiscuity, not outside the church, but within the church. And you think, yeah, that's an issue. Or you look at the question of uh, integrity and generosity in finances. You look at the corruption that exists within churches, pastors lining their pockets with the offertory and giving of their people. You see the rampant greed and materialism that exists in the Western church. Is that the Western church's most pressing need? Or maybe it's that we need more and better evangelism. As you look around the church, the form of evangelism that you mostly see is awkward giving out of Christian tracts and dumping propositions on people. And and is it that the church has forgotten the Great Commission and we need to do more and better evangelism so that the world will be reached with the gospel? Maybe it's that we need disciplined biblical thinking 
more expository preaching of the word, better theological education and equipping for our pastors in training. Is that the greatest need of the church? Or maybe a present-day example might be we need more authentic worship, more authentic community for people to belong to. What is the greatest need of the Western church? D.A. Carson says he reckons the greatest need is prayer, the knowledge of God in prayer. This is what he says, and I quote, Is it not true that by and large, that's the church, we are better at organizing than agonizing, better at administering than interceding, better at fellowship than fasting, better at entertainment than worship, better at theological articulation than spiritual adoration, better, God help us, and God help me, at preaching than we are praying. When I first read that, sentence as a 21 year old it drove a stake of conviction through my heart and it still does and i was reminded just this week of that very paragraph as a a brother of mine who's in in ministry a, a fellow pastor hands it resolved texted it to me it was a very timely reminder i remember reading a quote by john calvin in his uh, famous book the christian institutes which says this and it's on the screen Talking about prayer, he says, Otherwise, to know God as the master and bestower of all good things, who invites us to request them of him and still not go to him and ask of him, this would be of as little profit for a man to neglect a treasure buried and hidden in the earth after it had been pointed out to him. If I told you there was a safe in this building with $20 million in it that no one owned, that no one would miss, and if I gave you the combination to that code on the safe, would you dawdle? Would you delay? Would you put it off? Why do we do that with prayer? You know, the church today knows nothing of the prayer of the church centuries ago that saw God pour His Spirit out in the fires of revival. And I confess my own personal need for transformation in this area. But I sense that this issue of prayerfulness is a watershed issue for us at Anchor. Will we be a church that is desperately seeking and pleading after God that He would do His work in this city and in our midst? Or will we be a church that continues to plant and grow this church on our own strength and out of our own self-sufficiency? Our prayer this week, as Brad has already mentioned in leadership, has been that this series, the next five weeks, would radically change the culture of our church. Someone once said to me, you know, the culture that you establish in the first year of church planting will not change. That will be the culture of your church as it continues year on after year after year. And part of that's true, but you know, part of it, I I really disagree with that. Because what it says is the Spirit of God cannot change the hearts of the people. And I believe that's true. And as I mentioned last week, this is an area I would love us to grow. Personally, I want to grow in this area myself, and my hope is that you do as well. So our hope, our prayer has been that during this series, God would speak to our hearts and transform our church. And so I'm going to do that right now as we come before him in his word. Will you join me? Let's pray. God, that... We can speak to you right now. And you listen. That is a massive privilege. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are our, our mediator, our high priest. Thank you that you make our prayers acceptable to our Father. Thank you that we can approach your throne of grace with confidence. God, you are the God who bends your ear towards the prayers of your people. You are the God of all might. You are the God of all majesty, of all glory, of all honor, of all worth. And this morning we ask that you would tune our hearts to hear your word, what you say to us. Change us. Spirit, do a work in our hearts, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen. Let's go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 13. If you don't have the scriptures in front of you, it's going to be on the screen so you can follow along. This is the word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he fervent, prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've got no idea why I picked probably the hardest passage on prayer to kick off our uh, series on prayer. But I think the reason I picked it is because it's so often overlooked because it's hard, and there is such richness in this passage. You know, if we come away from this sermon with 10 questions and 15 objections to what this verse says, then I think we've missed the point. Because I think what James is trying to encourage us to see here this morning in his word is that prayer is powerful and prayer is effective. And yet, I'm aware that questions about this passage abound, like what is anointing? Why do we do it? What is the prayer of faith? Is this someone who is spiritually sick or physically sick? Why does James connect sin and sickness here? Is this a watertight promise of healing every single time? Haven't the gifts of the Spirit ceased at the end of the, the apostolic age? And so what I want to do is very quickly skim through as many of those answers as I can because I don't want us to be distracted from what the thrust of James is saying by these important questions. And so the first question is this, what is anointing? Why do they do it? Anointing in Middle Eastern culture had a very medicinal purpose to it. They would often anoint people in the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan picks up the, the guy who's been beaten. He takes him to the inn and they anoint his wounds with oil and wine. It has medicinal purpose to it. But yet here in this context, it has more of a medicinal purpose. It has a very rich biblical religious symbolism to it. You notice as you read the scriptures that anointing with oil occurs in the laying on of hands and commissioning of the leaders of God's people. And it's a symbol of the presence of God's grace and His Spirit. 
And so here, what we may have in James is a combination of the healing work of God miraculously as well as the ordinary medicinal healing purposes that God has blessed us with in medicine. And it might be that those two things combine really well here. Or it may just be that this is purely a symbolic form of God's spirit and his grace. The scriptures practice anointing all the time. There's no need to be afraid of it in the same way that we would baptize people as a symbol and that the waters of baptism have no saving power in and of themselves. It's not like the oil heals the person. God heals them. But this is a rich symbol. So that's, that's, that's what anointing is. Secondly, isn't this about spiritual sickness and not physical sickness? You'll notice the verse there in verse 14. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Sick. And that word could be taken to mean spiritually sick or spiritually weak. But I don't think that's the case for a couple of reasons. The first is, every time this word is used in the Gospels, it is used of physical sickness. When it's not used of physical sickness, when it's used of some form of weakness, it's often qualified with another word like weakness of spirit or weakness of body. Second reason I think this is physical sickness is that it seems to me that the practice that we see here in James of anointing and praying for healing is exactly what the disciples did. In Mark chapter 6, verse 13, it says this, And the disciples cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And so it seems to me that this is the practice of the disciples of whom James was one. And this person here on view is someone who is physically sick. Third question is, why does James connect sickness and sin? And isn't it dangerous to do that? In verse 15 and 16, James says that if the person has sinned, they will be made well. They will be saved and raised up. Now, to be sure, Scripture tells us that there is no cause and effect link between sickness and suffering. You get that from a book like Job, where Job is a righteous man who yet suffers. And the whole purpose of the book of Job is to say, you can't point at Job and say, look, your sin has caused this suffering. His three friends try and do it. Or you go to somewhere like John chapter 9, verse 1 and 3, where the disciples walk past a man who was blind and they say to Jesus, Master, who sinned that this man was born blind, himself or his parents? And Jesus says, you know what? Neither of them sinned. There is no cause and effect link with sin and suffering every single time. How much damage has been done when well-meaning Christians point to someone who's sick and say, the reason you are sick is because you have sinned. And yet, there are occasions in Scripture where sin and suffering are linked. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for example, where Paul is chastising the Corinthian church for their practice of the Lord's Supper. The rich come, they eat all the food, the poor go hungry, people are getting drunk. It's a complete mess. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30, That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Paul links their suffering, their sickness and even death to their sin. That's why James would say here in 5.15, And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. The important word there is if. It implies that there may not be a connection with sin in this person's life. But if there is, the healing that comes physically will also come spiritually and that sin will be forgiven. And so there may be occasions where sin and sickness are linked. 
But here's the deal. My guess is God reveals that to the person suffering, not to those around him who can stand in judgment and say, oh, you're suffering because of your sin. Fourth question is this. Is this a watertight promise of healing? Verse 15, it says, The prayer of faith will save or heal the sick person. Is this a watertight promise, a guarantee that every time the elders come, lay your hands, anoint with oil, and pray in faith that the person will be healed? And I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is a promise that every single time this happens, God will heal. You notice there, the prayer is qualified. It's the prayer of faith. And so the next question is, well, what is the prayer of faith? Well, let me start with what I don't think the prayer of faith is. I don't think the prayer of faith is the faith of the sick person. I don't think the prayer of faith here on view is the person who's laid out and has requested healing. You'll notice it's the prayer of the elders that is on view here. So damaging is it when people in spiritual leadership come to people, they pray for them, nothing happens, and they say, you lack faith. That's not what James has on view here. It's the faith of the elders that's on view. It's their faith. So if anyone is lacking faith, it's not the sick person, it's the elders. But that's not what I think it means. Secondly, I don't think faith here, the prayer of faith, is like some magical formula that once you reach a certain quantity of faith in God, has to answer the prayer because you've, you've had enough faith without any doubt that he's going to do it. I don't think that's what faith is here. You'll notice even in the Gospels, Jesus heals even in circumstances where faith is lacking. Remember the man who comes to Jesus whose son is sick and Jesus says, if you believe I will heal. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so I don't think that this is a watertight promise. But what is the prayer of faith then? And this is where I'm at at the moment, I think, in my research and reading. People have different opinions on this. But this is what I think it means. The prayer of faith is prayer that is accompanied with the gift of faith for healing. I'll say that again. The prayer of faith is prayer that is accompanied with the gift of faith for healing. This is what I mean. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and 9, Paul begins to list off some of the gifts that the Spirit distributes to the church. And this is what it says. 12, verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. And to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. This is special faith that is given to a select few in the church, as opposed to common faith, which is given to every single person who believes in the name of Jesus. So what is this special gift of faith that is given? Well, I think this gift of faith that is given here is Faith to believe for something that Scripture doesn't otherwise declare to us or the gospel give us reason to believe. Outside of those two things, it is faith that is given to believe that in this circumstance, God will do this. Now, if you think that is ludicrous, I've got John Piper, Don Carson, I've got some good people to back me up on that one. Right? There are plenty of people that think that's what this verse means. And so we can quite easily connect 1 Corinthians 12.9 and James 5. 16 and see how they would work together this is how i imagine it would work the elders would come they would pray for a person they would anoint them lay hands on them and as they pray maybe one or some of those elders would be given a gift of faith 
to know that in this circumstance, God will answer their prayer with a yes, and so they pray with confidence and God heals, sometimes. But other times, God doesn't give that gift of faith. Maybe even a lesser ailment or illness, and the elders come and they pray, and God does not give the gift of faith, and so healing does not occur. As with every gift, the gift is a gift distributed according to the will of the Spirit of God. It is a gift. It cannot be manipulated. It cannot be manifested up. God distributes as he sees fit. Now, I can honestly say to you that I personally have never prayed with such confidence. I'm hungry for it. I would love to see it happen. I honestly tell you I've been praying for the gift of healing for a number of years. But here's the thing. As I've been doing some reading and research on this, I'm beginning to get convinced that, I, that there is no resident gift of healing that resides in a person. You notice there in 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about gifts of healing. Right? It's not a, attached to the person. It's just that God distributes these gifts of healing occasionally. That might be the case. But there are people who claim to have been able to pray with such confidence. And one of those people, I believe, is Pastor Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church, Texas, and head of the Acts 29 movement, who was, he believes, healed of a brain tumor about five years ago. And the doctors gave him a year, and he went back healthy, and they gave him two years, and he went back healthy, and they gave him three years, and he went back healthy, and the next time he went back, they said to him, well, we think it's 10 years. And he said to him, are you guys just making this up? And they said, yeah, pretty much. He said, I, I knew that. I was just waiting for you guys to catch up. Now, I long for the day when God would bless our church with the gift of faith for healing. Final question. Hopefully we've got time for this one. Haven't the gifts of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit ceased? The argument goes like this. All of God's miraculous work is confined to certain epochs and seasons in salvation history, around the person of Moses, around the person of Elijah and Elisha, around the person of Jesus, and around the apostles. Outside of those four, three or four events, God does not work miraculously anymore. And so the argument goes that now all of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit have ceased because the apostles are dead, the canon is closed, God doesn't work like that anymore. But it seems to me, as I read James chapter 5, he's arguing in the exact opposite direction of that. He uses the example of Elijah to say what? He's special. You shouldn't expect to be able to pray like Elijah. No way. The exact opposite. In verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he fervently prayed. That's James's point. Elijah is a man just like you. He's not in a special category. I'll give you 20 other arguments that I believe the miraculous gifts of the Spirit continue today. Now, I labor this because I don't want you to be distracted by arguments away from what I think James is encouraging us towards, and that is this. Prayer is powerful and effective. Prayer is powerful and effective. So hopefully, having got those questions and objections out of the way, we can commit to what James is saying. And this is, this is what I think. This is my big idea. Ordinary people committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God can see miraculous answers to prayer. Ordinary people committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God can see miraculous answers to prayer. So let's go. First point is prayer is for all people in all circumstances. James 5.13 Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. The call to prayer here is very broad. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you rejoicing? Sing a song of praise. That's a form of prayer. Are you sick? Call the elders to pray for you. It is always appropriate to pray for God's people, be it lament, be it praise, be it confession, be it request and intercession. It is always appropriate for us to pray. But you know, if the only time we pray is when we're suffering, if the only time we come to God is when we need Him, maybe we're actually using God. But when we come to God in every circumstance, in suffering, and in joy, in a season of need, and in a season of abundance, if we can come to God, whatever the circumstance, that demonstrates that we don't just want God for his stuff, but that we love him. And you'll notice also here that prayer is not just by the leaders of the church, by the elders. Everyone is encouraged to pray. Verse 16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The whole church is called to pray. Not just the elders who come and pray for healing. Everyone, ordinary Christians who love Jesus, praying for miraculous things to happen. I love it when I look around after our gatherings and see someone praying for someone or a group of people gathered around laying hands, praying for someone. I love it when I see that happening. We want to develop a culture of prayer at Anchor, and we want it to happen not just by the leaders. We don't want our prayer meetings to be filled with the prayers of the leaders. Everyone can pray here at Anchor Church. Ordinary Christians praying for miraculous things. And so if you're chatting to someone after our gathering and, and they share something with you that is deserving of prayer, don't just say, I'll pray for you. Be praying for you during the week. Pray for, if it's appropriate, stop. Pray for them on the spot. You know what? That saves you from forgetting it during the week. How many times do you say to someone, yeah, I'll pray for you, and then, and then you forget you see them that Sunday, you're like, oh, Jesus, I'll pray for that person quick before they talk to me, right? How, come on. I've, I know I've done that, all right? Pray for them on the spot if it's appropriate. Way more encouraging for that to happen. Let us be a church of prayer. All people, every occasion, praying. Secondly, it seems here also that the church has a special ministry for prayers of healing. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. I take it that because the elders are summoned and because they pray over this person, that this person is bedridden. They don't just have a cold, right? It's not every time you get a cold that you call up the elders and say, you need to come to my house, anoint me with oil and pray over me. This, this sickness is significant for this person. And so they come, they anoint this person, they pray over them. And if God chooses to give the gift of faith for healing, he heals. And if he doesn't, he says no. You know, I think we stumble over the unqualified nature of this promise here that the prayer of faith will heal or save this person. You know, Jesus says similar things, does he not? John 14, whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask. 
Now, there's a qualifier there, isn't it? The qualifier is whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That doesn't mean if you pray for something and then just tack in the name of Jesus on the end of it that God has to give it to you. It's not what it means. What it means is that we pray in a way that submits ourselves to Jesus, to his glory, to his will, to his way. Remember Paul, the Apostle Paul, asked God three times to remove the thorn of flesh from him. Three times Paul pleaded with God and three times God said no. We know Paul is the the apostle who walked around and healed people on many occasions. And yet in this occasion, God says no. There will be times where God will choose to glorify his name by healing someone. And there will be times where God would choose to glorify his name by not healing someone. In that occasion, he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. God will be glorified. But you know, the fact that sometimes God says no doesn't mean we shouldn't pray like this. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek for God to heal people. And so this morning, we want to do exactly that. We want to pray for people who need healing, be that physical healing of some description, be that spiritual healing, be that emotional healing from some past hurt. We would love to pray for you. And so during our time of response and worship, there are a number of us who are going to be in the foyer there with oil. We will anoint you and pray for you if that's what you wish. Now, for those of you who are worried about being anointed, we're just going to wipe either a little bit of oil on the back of your hand or on your forehead as you wish. But we would love to pray for you because we believe that this is what God wants to do and what James is calling us to. Ordinary people committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God might see miraculous answers to prayer. Point number three, and this is what I got excited about this week. James 5, 16, prayer is powerful. This is what it says. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The righteous person's prayer is powerful. The righteous person's prayer is effective. Now, I don't know about you as I read that, I think, who are the righteous people? How can I be a righteous person? Because I want prayer that's powerful and effective. Now, I don't think the righteous there are some special class of Christian would work completely against James's argument there. The righteous people there are simply people who love Jesus, are full of the Spirit and walk in obedience. Ordinary Christians. Now to be sure, there are times where our sin and our disobedience would hinder our prayers. Remember 1 Peter 3, 7, where God addresses the sin of husbands for not living in an understanding way with their wife. And one of the reasons he gives for for not doing that is it will hinder your prayers. And yet we know that we don't have to be perfect in order to have God answer our prayers. God answers the prayers of sinners all the time, but for those who continue to live in willful, unrepentant sin, it seems to me that God would be inclined to say no. And so people who love Jesus, full of the Spirit, walking in obedience, your prayer is powerful and effective. Now that word powerful means this. I don't know how to explain it any other way. Full of power. That's it. That's what powerful means. Full of power. It means that your prayers are alive. They're at work. They're energizing. They're accomplishing things. They're changing circumstances. 
There is prayer in the power of the people of this church. That's what this verse means. But if we're honest, most of us don't really feel that, do we? Most of us feel like we pray and we don't really see power. We don't really see it working the way that James describes here. I read an article written by uh, an atheist in the New York Times and the title of the article was Prayer is Useless. He goes on to say that the only use that prayer has is a psychological benefit for the person who is praying, but it is complete delusion to think that anyone is listening or that anything is going to happen outside of psychologically for that person. Sometimes that's what it feels like, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like prayer doesn't even benefit us. It's more of a duty than it is a joy. Let me share with you just, just one little beautiful story of answered prayer. There's a, a guy who used to be at our previous church. His name was Stu, and he had a large family. And one of his little daughters came to him and said, Daddy, do you think we, should, we could go to the Easter show? And he said, sweetie, I'd, I'd love to take the family to the Easter show, but tickets are expensive and we just can't afford it right now. And she said, well, Daddy, why don't we pray and ask that God would give us the tickets to the Easter show? And he was like, imagine that moment as a father. You're like, oh my goodness, what do I do? I want to affirm that my daughter can bring any request to God. But Stu in his heart of hearts thinks, God's not going to give us tickets to the Easter show. But you know what they did? They got down and they prayed and his daughter prayed that God would give them tickets to the Easter show. And later that day, a guy called Phil was visiting our pastor Ray and dropped into his house and they were chatting and, and as Phil was leaving, he said, oh Ray, you don't know anyone that wants five tickets to the Easter show, do you? I bought these tickets for my family and no one wants to go and so I'm willing to give them to anyone who would like to take them. And Ray just happened to call Stu that afternoon and Stu told him the story and Ray said, you'll never guess what, Stu. Phil just dropped around and he said he's got five tickets to the Easter show to give to your family. Now, the skeptic might think, well, that's coincidence. But I have a feeling that God had a hand in that. God loves to answer prayer. God often changes circumstances in answer to prayer. So why is it that our experience can sometimes be so contrary to what James 5 says? Why is it that we just don't see powerful prayer? And I want to offer a couple of suggestions to you. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but, but maybe we don't see powerful prayer because we don't ask. James 4 verse 2 and 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And so we, we don't see God working because no one's praying, no one's asking. Or maybe it is that you do ask, but your motives are tainted for your own personal glory. James 4 says, And when you do ask, you ask for your own selfish gain and not the glory of God. Or maybe it's that we're just not desperate and dependent on God for Him to act. Maybe it's that prayer is cursory and, and routine and there is no real deep yearning for God to act. God sees the heart. He doesn't just see the words that come out of the mouth. Or maybe it's that we're not persistent. We ask God for something once and we think, well, that's enough. God knows. God's heard. Let him answer. And he doesn't. Or maybe it's all of the above. Now, I realize that there are way more reasons than that. Like maybe you have been persistent. Maybe you have been desperately pleading after God. Maybe you have been asking with the right motives. 
And maybe it's just that God says no. But you know, for me, my personal conviction this week is that I have been hungry to see God work in this city. But I wonder if I'm willing to wrestle with God, to really get on my knees and wrestle with God over it. Have I been like Jacob who wrestled with the Lord? Have I been like Epaphroditus who wrestled in prayer for the church in Ephesus? And if I'm honest with you, I haven't. I've been praying for things, not persisting, sometimes with mixed motives. But you know, James 5 is about a reminder that your prayers are powerful and effective. That your prayers are powerful to transform lives. That your prayers are powerful in the everyday, ordinary decisions to continue to put Jesus first. That your prayers are powerful in seeing people freed from oppression, in seeing people healed. That your prayers are powerful in seeing God open doors and grant you opportunities. Ordinary people committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God will see miraculous answers to prayer. And in order to encourage us and inspire us towards that, James gives us the example of Elijah. Have a look at verse 17. This is what he says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The point is this. Elijah is just a dude. He's just a guy. He's an ordinary human. Now, to be fair, in, in Jewish religion and faith, Elijah was a prayer warrior. He was a hero, and people would always say, pray like Elijah. He was held up as, as an example. But what James is saying here is that even ordinary, everyday Christians can pray like the wonderful legend of prayer, Elijah. Every Christian, do you believe that you have the same access to the ear of God that Elijah did? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You see, in the end, it's not Elijah who stopped the rain, is it? It's God who stopped the rain. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the one who works, and God answered Elijah's prayer. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your prayers, God could take and shift weather systems? Here's a story that a mate of mine, Damo, who's actually here this morning, tells me of the time he was involved in Christian surfers down at Maroubra. Now, if you're familiar with Maroubra, it's home uh, surf break of the Bra Boys. It's a rough break. It's kind of locals only sort of thing, but... Christian surfers had a wonderful ministry down there and it developed a reputation for an event they put on called the Jesus Pro-Am. The Bra Boys knew that when the Jesus Pro-Am was on, the surf was good. And they, it used, they used to mock at it, you know, like, oh yeah, the surf's flat, the surf's going to be hopeless, the, the surf contest is going to be a flop, and then the surf would be great. And they're like, that's weird. And it happened year in, year out, year until... It developed a reputation that when the Jesus program was on, the surf was going to be great. That's just one small little example. But I wonder if you just write that off as coincidence, even as a person of faith. Do you believe that God could answer your prayers 
and do miraculous things? Do you believe that God could answer the prayers for your friends and your family, your neighbours, your colleagues to come to an understanding of Jesus? Because, you know, if you don't believe that, you will never pray. If you don't believe that God could answer your prayer, you won't even get on your knees to begin to pray. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God could answer the prayers of a people of a church that are desperate for God to work in a city and bring revival? Do we believe that? Friends, the church moves forward on its knees in prayer. You notice there in verse 17, it says that Elijah prayed fervently. Literally, it says Elijah prayed with prayer. He prayed fervently. What does it mean to pray fervently? It means to pray earnestly. It means to pray consistently. It means to pray with diligence, with passion, with persistent prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to pray like that. I want to be a part of a church that prays like that. And so my encouragement to us this morning is to begin today. If you need to, hit the reset button. Make a commitment to pray every single day for the next four weeks of our prayer series. Four more Sundays on prayer. I want to make a commitment to pray every single day. And if you need to, just begin with one or two minutes. It doesn't have to be an hour a day. If, if you go, all right, I'm going to pray every day for the next four weeks and you start with an hour, it's going to be like that time you went to the gym after four years and you, you ran for an hour, you felt great and you were sore for three weeks afterwards and you never did it again, right? Just take baby steps. Begin with a minute or two. They say it takes about 40 days to form a new habit. And if you've been out of the habit of praying, why not begin with something really small and simple, a minute or two a day for the next four weeks? There's a couple that were at the church that I grew up at who were absolute prayer warriors. Their names were Esmond and Laurie. And Esmond and Laurie used to come to almost every event that was put on where the gospel would be preached. They would come to evangelistic events. They would come to youth group outreach nights. They would come to explaining Christianity courses. And they would sit in the office and they would pray for the entire duration of that event that God would be at work. Now, I have no doubt that, that come heaven, and, and I think these guys have passed away now. They were faithful old saints. I have no doubt that when we see them face to face in the age to come, there will be people who are coming up to them saying, thank you for praying for me. I was at that event where you sat in the office and prayed, and your prayers were powerful. Your prayer was effective to open my blind eyes. God heard and sought to glorify his name because you prayed for me. Thank you. I've got no doubt that that is going to happen. Ordinary people, just like Esmond and Laurie, committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God can see miraculous answers to prayer. But you know, maybe you're here this morning and you have never prayed. Maybe once. You, you felt a bit of panic before that exam and you quickly shut up a prayer. Maybe, but maybe you've never really seriously prayed. And that's Okay. Many believe that prayer is a religious duty that you perform. And my hope is this morning that you've seen that that is not the case. That is not what we believe about prayer here at Anchor. Prayer in most other religions is formulaic. It's repetitious. It seeks to manipulate God. Prayer 
in the Bible is about relationship. It's about knowing God as Father. That's what the Scriptures talk about prayer. The Bible says that God is a Father who loves to bless His children. The question is, how does sinful, imperfect people come before a perfect and holy God and begin to ask Him for things? How is that possible? You know, it's only possible through a mediator, through a priest. And that mediator and priest is Jesus, who by his death on the cross has taken our sin upon himself and forgiven that sin and washed it away and has gifted us his perfect nature, his righteousness, that we could come before God as Father, in relationship, not out of duty, not out of religion, not out of a sense of trying to manipulate and twist God's arm. We could come before him as father and request that he would bless his children. Friends, if you don't know God like that, if you don't know prayer like that, we would love to introduce you. We would, we would love to begin a conversation with you about what that looks like. But maybe you've been around here, Anchor, long enough and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, but you've heard enough. And maybe for you this morning, it's time to pray a prayer that God loves to answer. And that prayer is simply, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus, the message of Christianity is that God forgives sin. He removes it, he takes it away. We're going to celebrate that gospel now as we respond in worship. We're also going to celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. To my right and left are two stations with bread and grape juice. And these two elements symbolize the death of Jesus. The bread symbolizes his body that was broken. The grape juice symbolizes his, his blood that was poured out and shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so for those of you who love Jesus and would like to be reminded of the gospel, come forward and dip the bread in the grape juice and eat it and remember what God has done as we respond in worship. We also mentioned that during this time of response, we would love to pray for people who need it. Maybe there is physical healing that you need. Maybe there is emotional healing that you need. Maybe it is spiritual healing. And we invite you to come forward. We've got going to have a number of people in the foyer there. We've got a small amount of oil that we would love to anoint you with and lay hands on you and pray that God would do his work. We're not promising that he will, but we believe that when ordinary people are committed to fervent prayer and an extraordinary God, we can see miraculous answers to prayer. I invite the band up. We're going to pray. We're going to worship. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the wonderful good news that Jesus has died on the cross for our sin. We thank you that that draws us into relationship with you, that we can come before your throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you are the God who bends your ear towards the prayers of your people. We thank you that you listen. We thank you that you hear. We thank you that you, God, are powerful that you, God, are powerful to hear our prayers and see fit to glorify your name and answer them. Father, forgive us for the times where we fail to believe. We believe, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. 
May you change our hearts. May you make us a church committed to fervent prayer, committed to you, God, who is extraordinarily powerful. Lord God, we long to see you act. We long to see you pour out your spirit on this city. We long to see you heal. We long to see you restore. We pray that you would do that for your glory. And we ask this now in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. And the people of God said, Amen.